0: Welcome to the Entrepreneur Academy with your hosts Nick Dutton of Engage Finance and James Cross from Crossover Property on this episode of the Entrepreneur Academy. It's working a small pond if you if you took your bread out on a small pond you're probably going to get a few fish tape and you can see it and you can have control over it if you took a bit of bread out over on the sea you lose sight of it and eventually it might get a bite but you're never going to see it better to have a small pond that you can keep focusing on than targeting 20 estate agents that you can you're never going to keep contact with but now here are your hosts nick and james welcome to another episode of the entrepreneur academy with jim and myself
1: hello everyone I hope we are all good
0: and uh we're doing another zoom call because we're still in corona times so we thought we'd do a discussion on buy refurbish refinance which jim has obviously done a lot of those and i've funded a lot of them so we thought we'd add our views um the good and bad points of of the brr strategy and it seems to be a strategy that a lot of people are doing at the moment because it seems to be a a funny time for what would traditionally be a flip um so we we break it down into the three stages um and the sort of expertise that both myself and jim can add to this so first of all we'll talk about the buy uh and i think something that I talk to my clients about, and you probably do as well Jim, sort of creating a plan first of all. So finding the right property and what you're planning to do with it. So if you want to just sort of give an idea about, um, you know, when you work with clients or you do it for yourself, what do you look for in a property to either decide whether you're gonna convert it to, you know, refurb it as a single net, refurb it as a HMO, how to find the demand in the area and how to adapt to the refurb depending on the property.
1: One of the key things is really what, what you want in terms of an investment. Do you want the, the kind of safer, longer term single let side of things, or do you want a HMO which potentially will cost you a bit more money but it will give you better cash flow going forward? Um, you know, I think that's, that is the first key step to see if you actually want HMO or if you want your single lets. Once you've kind of got that nailed down, then it's it's looking at um, finding your area that works for those strategies. So if you go find single lets, you want to make sure that there is a good tenant demand as a first thing. Um, if you don't know um, if there is a good tenant ground, first thing, speak to letting agents. They'll know inside now. Um, you can look on Rightmove as well to see what properties have been up for let, um, how many have let agreed. So if there's not many available and there's a lot of let agrees, it means the house has been let quickly. If there's loads of properties to let and none of them have had let agrees or anything like that, or they all look a bit drabby, then you can once you've done a refurb, you'll be on the higher end of the market and you'll know you have a better product than other people's. So it's just doing a bit of research and, and formulating kind of an opinion on that side. Um, I guess then once you've kind of identified that area and worked out what the tenant demand will be, you can start fleshing out what kind of rent you're going to get. Um, and then looking at that kind of um, deal, I suppose, and seeing what works and what doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, so sort of, sort of you know, some of the key things I'd really look at on, on the first point, you know, going into this strategy.
0: Yeah. Would you put a um, a mock advert out? Um, and See what the demands is. Well,
1: maybe not for single ads uh, but I, I I do know people who do it for HMOs and, and put like spare room adverts on yeah Um the problem with that is um, it it's good and it does give you a, an idea but it can sometimes be a false expectation because there's so many spare room adverts up that people put on there that are either just that aren't, some of them aren't real, some of them are other people doing testing spare, spare room adverts. And I know a couple of letting agents I deal with for HMOs, they get the majority of their tenants from other platforms apart from Spare Room. Um, it's either through direct advertising, Gumtree, um, word of mouth. Mm. Um, so to gauge tenant demand is quite difficult just from Spare Room. Um, you can use it as another tool, another comparison to kind of build a picture for you. Um, but for my opinion, that letting agent is the best port of call because they know what properties they're letting, they know Absolutely. what the demand is. Yeah, if you speak to a letting agent and they yeah. go, Um, you know, we haven't got we have got enough properties and we've got tenants lined up, then you know there's demand. If they go, Oh, we've got loads of empty rooms, we're struggling to fill them, it either means there are you can't find the tenants or they're not actually a very good letting agent. Yeah. <laughs> so, your specific
0: HMO letting agent, then.
1: Yes, definitely. I, I would I would not go to a to a single let agent uh, who doesn't know how to manage HMOs. They're a different ball game. Yeah. Um, I, I'd also, as a small little nugget sideline, because I've had this come up recently, where I would never get a letting agent to sell your house for you either, when they're not a proper selling estate agent. Right. Okay. Because uh, I've I've had a friend of mine who, who who's had a, a small portfolio. Yeah. um tried to sell he, he's, he's got a good letting agent who's a friend of his and he tried to get him to sell it for him and he, he can't sell houses for, for anything it's been on the market a year and i just told him to scrap it and go with someone who actually sells houses properly
0: oh, i see because it's just a completely different sales pitch i guess
1: e- exactly yeah they, they don't know how to sell a house they're not they're not got those they haven't got buyers they've got tenants
0: so i guess the the trial um, advertisement on like spare room that they're just reaching a minority rather than actually where most people would go realistically how many people does spare room reach compared to a letting agents and like you say oh, when, yeah. you, when you're assessing demand
1: exactly yeah spare, spare is a, a marketing channel um, and obviously there are other marketing channels and, and ways to bring tenants in as well
0: so let's let's talk about area first would you have a specific area to target for you know HMOs rather than single lets. Um, you know a lot of people talk about their gold mine area. Would you have a gold mine area of just this is an area I want to target, whether it be HMO single let or would it be like this is my HMO gold mine area, this is my single let gold mine
1: area? Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna say the good old it depends um, yeah. because I've I've got uh, a good area near where I am that works really well for single lets and really well for HMOs. I mean, we've done both in that area um where the property values are quite low um but there is demand for both and that's just because it's the area um and then i've got other areas which are slightly more expensive areas where they don't work for single lets, but they work well for hmos so it it very much depends and and speaking with those agents and seeing what that demand is like as well because you don't want to go into put HMO where there is literally no demand, and vice versa with a single let. Yeah. Um, and I think my my general uh, point of view is with buy to lets is again it depends what you want. Do you want a high value asset that's going to give you good capital appreciation, or one that's going to give you the good cash flow? Mm-hmm. Because to get to the good cash flow and return investment, generally you want to go to the lower value areas for buy to lets. Cool. That's generally where it works. Yeah. Um. HMOs have probably got a bit more range in them because you can either go high end in a higher value area and do a big HMO or you can do a very small sort of budget HMO if you like for the, for the lower class areas. Yeah. Um, And then you can, you can always split, split that down. This comes into your research for HMOs where you've got different working tenant types as well. Um, So you've got your blue collar workers working in factories, warehouses, um, uh, you've got the white collar professional workers. Um, we've worked a lot with nurse, nurses and NHS staff, um, you know, doctors, other general professional people. Yeah. Um, and then you've got, um, you know, DHS as well. You can have it all let to DHS. Um, so there's a few different tenant types as well. And again, it depends on the area and it depends on, on who you want in your property as well sometimes. Yeah. Um,
0: so would you okay. adapt the refurb, would you know what tenant you're going to have in it pre-buy?
1: Yeah definitely I' never go with, I would always have that end goal in mind. Um, again speaking with the letting agents is understanding what the tenant demand is and obviously the type of tenant. Um, for example if you're very near a hospital, you'd probably be aiming for nurses, doctors, yep. hospital workers um, and you probably want to be that slightly better end of the spectrum. If you're in a, an area where there's a lot of um, just warehouse staff, factories, um, you know, they, they want cheap and cheerful accommodation that's affordable, um, you know, so the, it, it's working with property yeah. the soon you finish it out to so the tenant type, really. Okay.
0: And looking at the, the specifics of a property, what would you look for? to show the signs that actually hey, this would work as a HMO. So sort of give us a rough idea of the initial view and what, what sort of things
1: catch your eye. Um, ooh, good question. It's uh, trying to put put down into what I see in my words is, yeah. is a tricky one. It's, uh, I think I think one of the big things with HMOs is, is, is obviously bedrooms. How many bedrooms can you get the property? Yeah. Um, so I think you kind of you can almost work it on a on a price per bedroom you're willing to pay for HMO when it's when it's finished. So almost say 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 for example when a property has been purchased and renovated to a HMO spec, each bedroom will be worth 30k for example or 40k, um, and then you can kind of judge that. So typically, typically for a four bed HMO, which uh, you know if you've never done one, I'd, I'd go for a smaller HMO first just from an experience point of view, um, a four beds can be relatively straightforward. Generally, if you get a, a terraced house or even a semi, you can have two reception rooms and the kitchen at the back, um, two bedrooms, up, up, two or three bedrooms in the first floor, and then potentially someone will have a loft room as well. Um, so we did a, the last four bed we did was a front reception room. All we did was build a stud wall across. So we've got one bedroom downstairs uh, a lounge and a kitchen on the back of it. And then the first floor had three bedrooms of which one we added an ensuite to and then it had a bathroom as well. And then upstairs was the attic room we made into a bedroom. So it was a four bed HMO with, with yeah. an en suite and a bathroom. Um, and that was relatively straightforward. No major structural work or anything like that. Um, and I think we were all in on that for 110,000. So just under 30K a bedroom. Which was a good a good project. Um, you know, you might struggle to find something like that now, but um it was good good at the time for sure.
0: You'd always look to convert the la or split the lounge
1: downstairs into a bedroom or Yeah, yeah. What one big thing you have to be careful of as well is when you start going to the bigger HMOs, you need to be careful of the space and um what the council will allow. So a four bed isn't officially licensable from a HMO um from the council basically. If you go five beds or above it is. Uh, unless you're in article four, then it will need to be licensed as a four bed. Yeah. Um, well, uh, one thing I would check, if you're going down the HMO route, there are more kind of hoops you need to jump through and more things you need to check. Um, so if, if that's the route you're going down, one thing I would check is check the local council, check their licensing standards and check their amenity regs standards as well. Um, because they will ha- probably have minimum bedroom sizes, usually eight square meters or above, some will let lower, but I always go minimum eight okay. uh, and ten square meters with double room um, you know you 've got certain sizes in the kitchen and the lounge that might need to be acquired for, and you know there 's various things that might need to be checked, so always check with your local council first um, so you 've got an idea of what you can fit in the property and what works because there's no point trying to squeeze a five bed HMO in there with one bathroom and a tiny little galley kitchen because it just, A, it won't really work from a licensing point of view. And B, you've got to think, well, do the tenants want to live that close and cramped together with one bathroom? Um, you right. know, I, I, I always think, because I used to live in a HMO years ago. And I always think, well, what would I want if I was living in it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, You know, and for me, I, I, I wouldn't live in one without an en suite, but that's me. <laughs>
0: I think I'd agree with you there. There's something you've touched on there, and actually I saw in a WhatsApp message the other day, someone saying, you know, do four-bed HMOs work?
1: Yeah. I'd say they do. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think if if you get the right property where it is a very straightforward putting a stud wall up for... The, the fourth bedroom if you like it's already got three bedrooms mm-hmm. it's a winner it's you know if you get it at the right price there's not a lot more work you have to do yeah Um i've never managed to do a five bed or one that works as a five bed that's where i've always come and stuck oh okay um so i don't, I don't know if other people found i've done six seven beds um four beds i've got some bigger ones as as well i'm going to do this year but uh, or for clients as well. But um, yeah, the the five bed one always seems to be a little bit of an unstuck and then when you're trying to stack a deal, right. there's the cost, the cost of the house goes up when you're trying to get a five bed. Unless you get that sixth bedroom out of it, it never seems worth it. Right.
0: Isn't that because of the extra cost of all the licensing and extra hoops you have to jump through for that?
1: Well, there's a little bit of that as well, but I think generally when you go, the pro- you can do a, a four bed HMO to terraced house, whereas you, to do a five bed, you need like a semi-detached yeah. Semi detached to worth more. Um, and I think, unless you can make six beds out of that semi, it's never worth it. Um, mm. I know people in, in different areas where there's different style of housing, uh, it works well for them. It's just in my particular area, um, the houses don't lend themselves to that as mm. much.
0: And do you find the smaller HMOs easier to let out? or
1: I think it- they can be. I think they can be, yeah. Um, you know, I think again it depends on tenant types so for for a smaller group of people who who kind of almost want to be like a little mini family who might actually get on well with each other having four people is easier to manage and you know there might be a group of friends or you know we've had a group of nurses who all knew each other um you know all shared a house together if you're going to the bigger six seven HMOs then you know if you're going higher end as well and you have working professionals in there they might actually just want a big room with an ensuite suite in all the time and they keep themselves to themselves. Yeah. Um, that's generally what we find because I think if I was doing six beds, seven beds, I wouldn't want to start sharing too many bathrooms or anything like that because right. people like to have their own private space generally. Okay.
0: And then what about student lets? Would you adapt it differently? I know a lot of people do focus on student lets. I don't know if it's one you've done or not. But... No,
1: I, to be honest, I've not done a student HMO yet um it's it's very tricky in in the area and um, there's a lot of purpose-built student accommodation going up yeah, um HMOs you know around here in in Nottingham way don't don't really work um there are there are some here already and they're ridiculous prices um and obviously we're in article four as well so whether student HMOs would work um uh, we can't convert new HMOs here right okay um yeah. And for anyone who doesn't know what Article Four is, it's basically a restriction on permitted development rights in your council. Most people think it just stops you doing HMOs, but what it actually is is stopping you doing permitted development um, and having to go to full planning permission. Okay. Um, so you could, under permitted development, you can change a C3 uh, dwelling, so a standard residential house, into a up to a six-bed HMO, which is a C4. Um, hmo class in article four you'd have to apply for planning to do that um and the reason they put article four in is because there is an oversaturation of hmos in that area so they would likely reject that anyway
0: we've seen any get through
1: um i know people who have got some through and wangled them and and got planning refused and then they've you know gone back and um question or or gone to appeal on it and got something through it's very special case circumstances that you have to do for that. right? Um, and it, again, it depends on the area. If you can prove that there aren't that many HMOs and there's a low saturation point in that area, you, you, you could push it through. But especially if you're starting out, don't don't try doing that. It's too much of a risk. Okay. Um, or if you're going to try and do that, have a plan B and and make sure your plan B also works.
0: Yeah, okay. So perhaps keep it as a single layer yeah the other sort of strategy that we've not touched on yet but one i've thought about with the sort of bar refurbishment finance is converting it to flats so yeah. converting it to a multi-unit free old block is that is that a strategy that you need to overcome with article four how have you found the numbers with those
1: i'm doing a lot of um these flat pavilion projects or, or, or focusing a lot on them for my own kind of partnership or portfolio and partnerships and for me, I, I really like them, and I think they work well. Mm. Um, obviously, when you start going to those style of projects, there's a lot more uh, money involved. There's a lot more technical knowledge involved, building works involved, um, hoops to jump through, planning, um, all that kind of stuff. So it's definitely not someone I ever recommend going straight into. No. Um, but the strategy itself works incredibly well um, in the right area if you can, if you can go through that um i mean we've we've just brought a a property we're trying to convert to 12 apartments um which will be you know a brilliant project but it's it's easily a 12-month project it's not something i could turn around in four weeks and get let out so that's something i have seen but you know some investors who jump straight into the big stuff and what they they actually forget about as well is, you know they're not going to get any income for 12 months um so they've they've got a cash flow the build and all the fees and all that and they've got to live off it all as well so I'd always say start smaller, build up you know what you're doing both in terms of experience and finance and, and work your way up to that level yeah. um, which is kind of the way I've done it really I started doing some buy to let projects and, and yeah work my way up to this, this point. And
0: I'm uh, guessing the, the type of property that would lend itself to a converting to flats is very different to a HMO you wouldn't, it wouldn't necessarily mm-hmm. work with Terrace house,
1: yeah, agreed. Yeah, there, there are some kind of some circumstances where a terrace or a semi-detached house or whatever it may be, uh, if they're wide enough, you, you can convert them or split into two flats, maybe three yeah. flats. Yeah, which I have seen. Um, but again, when you start doing that, there are there's more in terms of building regulations that you would have to go through to do building works for the property. Um, it may or may not. De- Need planning permission depending on what property there is, or if there's myth development rights. Um, But yeah, you you could could quite quite happily do that with with a house. Um, Just depends on the property
0: and the size
1: and the size. Yeah, new
0: point of view. You know, the thirty meters squared per flat is quite a big thing. Um, Yeah, and to be fair, you know, realistically, you don't really want to be creating a flat less than thirty meters squared when it's just a single house converted into two flats, you know, that is going to be small. I think when, when you've got big commercial buildings that, you know, when you're close to that 30 meter square, it's a bit different because the building itself is big.
1: Yes. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, we've got a project on where we've got a few units under 30 square meters and, um, you know, only just, but they're more like studios, which is fine because it's, it's all the works in that space. Um, you know, and you, you've kind of got, you kind of have got that middle ground between a f- full-on flat, a studio, and then a HMO room. So I mean, it's, I, I quite like that the studio is in the right area. Touch on obviously the property. Uh, I will talk about the funding side of
0: thing, but I wanted to touch on the refurb now because this, <laughs> from what you know, from what we see as well, from a funding point of view, the refurb seems to be the bit where a lot of people get unstuck and uh, calculate yeah. things way off what they should be although it's hard to sort of give advice around the refurb when you when haven't got a specific case but if you want to go through um, any obvious signs to avoid when you're looking at a property for the first time what sort of budget roughly for you know conversion to a single let conversion to a HMO again I know it's going to be roughly but just to sort of give people an idea and the sort of different teams that are needed to do those refurbs because I can imagine again you know, a lick of paint, a bit of carpet is going to be very different team-wise to a, a full HMO conversion.
1: I've been, you know, been there and done it a bit of the hard way with with these refurb's and learn as I've gone along. Uh, I think for a, the buy to are the easiest ones for you know for a refurb, and you've kind of got there's two ways you can almost do it. It's one, you can. It, it depends how much involved you want to be. So we've we've typically done it uh with investors who literally wanted nothing to do with the project at all where we've kind of project managed it on their behalf and brought in our trades where we needed and, and done the project for them um, the first few we did it was obviously estimating a bit of the cost and getting it right um when we started we we brought in a a builder who did the majority of the works himself um with a couple of trades like electricians and stuff you know you have to get right uh and gas safe plumbing and all that but um you know we got a price for him and it was it was a kind of you know it didn't really change unless there was any additionals but it's always as you go through a project there's always things you uncover always things that's been missed Mm -hmm. um so you always have a contingency there that that goes on top of that thing and uh, expect to pay it um, you know, uh, there's always there's always going to be things or, you know, toward the end of the project as well, you might think, oh, I'll just do this just to increase the rental it, or just do that to make it look nicer. you just got a budget for it. Um, what, what, what figure would you put on the contingency? If it's just straight well, buy to that, and and you're pretty certain you've got everything. About ten percent. If it's something you're a bit, if there's a few unknowns and you're not and you're probably a bit ne- a bit new, maybe fifteen percent. I put a twenty percent contingency on something because it was a massive unknown on a, on a bit of the project. So I just said right, that's just just in case. But yeah, that, that should generally cover you for for everything really.
0: Your project can't swallow twenty percent contingency. Then it's probably not the right project to be
1: doing. Exactly right. Yeah. If if you're yeah, if you're on the bread and butter line, if it goes over that, that money you're spending and you, you haven't got it to pay or anything like that, then you shouldn't be doing it in the first place. Um, you've got to be prepared to, to have that extra there. Um, you know, and I think, I think the other way of doing it as well is if you've got a bit more time in your hands and you want to kind of learn and get stuck in a bit more, which I have seen people doing, and I don't, you know, there's pros and cons to both, is you can almost do a fair bit of the project yourself and learn as you go. Okay. Um, you know, so I know people sort of do their own rip out, strip off wallpaper, you know, trying to fit kitchens and, and fit bathrooms and, and paint and all that stuff, which is great because you, you learn the process from start to finish and it's got a lot of merit in doing it that way. And I mean, people say, yes, you'll save money. In my view, you, you spend the same money because it depends how much you value your time. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that's, that is another way of doing it. And just bringing in different trades when you need them and you're on site every day and you, you, you're doing the work. Um, so it's certain, and I know people who do that for a living, they, they'll do flips, for example, uh, or buy to let conversions. They'll just, they'll just do a project, a project, a project. And they'll just gently build up their, their, yeah. their process. Yeah. Um, so if you've got the time, it, it's definitely recommendable to spend some time doing the work because at least then you'll learn. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, if if you're if you're an investor who who doesn't have the time to do that, or who has bigger plans to build a larger portfolio and wants it all hands off, then obviously that's not going to work. But you give it to someone who who will manage that for you, and you've got the experience. Um, I suppose it's a
0: balance as well, isn't it? Because um, you know, if it's taking you a week, week and a half to fit a kitchen when the builder could have done it in two days yeah eating into a lot of time there a lot of you know if you've got bridging costs involved you know there's there's definitely you've got to weigh it up and if you if you're if you're likely that you you know you might cock it up compared to paying a bit extra for a professional to do it yeah um, you've got to really sit back and think about it haven't you
1: yeah definitely definitely um you know i mean i've i've done a bit of bit of stuff myself and uh i'm not not a pro in any of it for sure uh you know, I'm I'm not I'm not a painter by trade. <laughs> I don't want to be. I mean the other thing I'd say as well is um when when you're sort of looking at a deal and trying to estimate build costs is a lot of people come and stuck on that point. Um and it is always tricky to do that. Um so there's there's a couple of ways you can do it, is is speak to other experienced investors who will know what to look out for in a property, yep. uh, any major things that need to be costed for the refurb. Or take take a builder with you um, who can give you a bit of a quote and estimate it works. And um, there's two ways you go with this. Um, you know, you might be lucky and get someone who do it to you for free. But um, having my own sort of building company, we we get a few requests of that all the time, and it yeah. does not degrade you because a, a builder can just go out and go out and go out and get free quotes all the time. They they just spend the time running the trail, and you might not get the full picture from them. What I'd suggest, and what I have actually done for a couple of people now, is offer to pay them a bit of money to list out certain items for you that they might have to charge out at a rough cost for each one. So when you're budgeting your refurb, you've got a list of items that you know that they'll charge and that you can look out for, and it gives you more information to work with, rather than them going, it's going to cost you around 10 grand for the project, mate. Yeah. Well, then you go. Well, how am I going to, How's that going to help me for the next one?
0: If you've got a sort of a checklist where you're like, okay, this one needs a new kitchen. That's this one might need a new rewiring. So that's going to cost this much, you know. Yeah. And I think that's you know it's absolutely worth its weight in gold, isn't it, when you're looking at properties regularly?
1: Yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, we we did it with a one guy reasonably Recently, we went. Uh, we basically just paid us for a, for a day to go out with him on. I think we had three three properties we viewed with him. Yeah. Yeah. And then we spent the afternoon, we did a bit of a report on each, gave him a, a kind of rough budget for each each property and then a bit of an itemized thing of what you could use to gauge it for other, other properties he's looking at. Um, he's happy because he's got value from that. We're happy because we've had our you know, time paid for. Yeah, yeah, um, and you know, I think he, he can use that to go and buy his next property. What
0: people need to realize is that a few quid from to someone for the day could save them thousands
1: yeah, exactly. Um, and I, I think I think if, if you're going to be in that game and you want to be an investor, you've got to pay for the right people. Um, you know, if you're trying to scrimp and save on paying someone hundred quid to give you some some good value information, then if you're trying to save a hundred quid, you know, what's your refo going to be like?
0: What sort of team to do a, a decent HMO? You know, a five six bed. What sort of team and costs would you would you anticipate there being?
1: Um, Yes, yeah, so when you get to HMOs, I, it, you sometimes can get a different level of of build team or people who can do it, and you'd almost want a a, a sort of turnkey uh, company who could do the whole project for you. Yes, uh, yeah. I, especially with HMOs, and I want I'd want to make sure they've done HMOs before, yeah. because generally they will know. Um, more about the the specs and legislation you have to do in terms of you know you've got fire doors in into smoke alarms heat detectors um for the bigger HMOs, fire alarm systems emergency lighting and there's there's a lot more that goes into it um at that level which you wouldn't have to do in the buy to let
0: um
1: and what you'll be relying on as an investor which i've seen it because we do it with investors as well is is the builder's experience yeah. And that teams, because we, we have to tell people, saying, well, you can't just do a quick refurb on this. You need to do it to these specifications to make it legally compliant. Yeah. Um, they go, oh, right, okay. And unfortunately, it adds a lot more cost. But if you don't know, you don't, you just don't know what you don't know, do you? Oh, no, no, that's um, So, you know, we try and help and advise where, where you can with these things. And you, you need someone who's done it and been there with the HMOs, definitely.
0: And that, that goes back to the bit where you you know you can charge to go out for the day because if if you don't bring a builder in until after you bought the property and then you think oh actually okay i didn't realize i needed those fire doors i didn't know i needed the smoke alarms you know a project can go from being good to bad within seconds
1: yeah absolutely um you, you know
0: for these big hmo what about things like project managers Cause I know you've, we've touched on it before in the past, but you know, would you need one for that sort of thing or?
1: Yeah, it, it, it's, I, I'm, I'm by to less. So I think, you know, it, it, it's much of a muchness and, uh, but on the definitely if you want to be completely hands off, yeah. you, you're going to need someone to be kind of your ears and eyes on the ground and, and to manage the different contractors, but not only manage that, manage things like the start of the project. Well, what do you actually want the property to look like? What's the design spec? Mm-hmm. Um, Because you know, you see great photographs on Instagram of other people's HMOs and things like that, and which is great, but you need to be clear on what you're putting in what style of kitchen is going in, what flooring is going around, what color are you painting on the walls, and you know, the bathrooms. What do you want to go high end or go just basic white sanitary wear? Um, and you need to get that all all listed out and and readied at the beginning. Which, if you haven't got this, if you haven't got the skills or, or knowledge to do that straight away, you need to be guided by someone, yeah. Um, and then the big thing that catches people out is that at the end of the project, you've got to furnish property and fit it all out. Absolutely. Uh, Yeah. You know, you've got to get all your knives and forks in there, all your plates. You've got to have wall art, beds, wardrobes, um, toilet brushes. Um, you know, you, you name it, it's got to go in there. And if, if you don't want to be on site, you've got to have someone who can organize and and get that all right for you. And the costs involved with that. Oh yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, I know furniture leasing is brilliant at the minute, and you can include a lot of that in the leasing pack, but okay you're still paying it monthly. Yeah, um, yeah. So you need to factor these things in because you could quite, if you could buy it all outright, you could quite easily spend 20 grand on a bigger HMO oh, for, for the fitting out. Yeah. It's um, cost you not budgeted. Yeah, exactly. Um, so ha- what, what, you know, what
0: what would what do you offer then to your clients? You are you one of the that offers the whole thing?
1: Yeah, so we we're, we're literally we met we yeah, we, we focus on working with investors who don't really want to do any work on you know in terms of being there on, on site all the day and organising it. So we'll we'll do it as a turnkey solution from start to finish. So that includes everything from initial deal appraisal, going through planning, building regulations. Going out to tender or um, getting pre construction phase design specs right, all the way through building works and then working with the interior designers to finish as well. So we offer basically everything from that. Right.
0: And do you work with experienced investors or newbies or does it depend on the project?
1: We work with both, to be honest. Um, we, we probably work, I think the majority of our clients are people who've been investors to a limit but they're they're pushing the boundaries into bigger projects um so we kind of work with them and, and guide and help with advice from you know a lot of stuff in the planning stage just getting that through planning permission um getting the drawings and specs right and um because especially before you even got planning permission you have to decide what you're going to do with the property so you know i work very closely with my architects. we've got a lot of projects you know on we've worked on and we both understand, and I understand it from the investor's point of view, they want to maximise space for the least amount of money that's going to cost them for the maximum value. Yes. Um, they won't know that, but I kind of understand it, and me and my architect bounce backwards and forwards and go, you know, things like "Well, I could have four flats in here, but it's going to cost me a lot more than doing three flats. Is it no, worth yeah. it for the extra value I'm getting out of it? Yeah. Um, so it's almost a... Um, well, a business case feasibility before you've even gone—that's my plans, and it's going to planning permission now.
0: Yes, you need to know exactly what you're going to be doing with it.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So there's a, you know, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of work just before you've even brought the property. Sometimes,
0: yeah. and smart, that's whatever. the benefit we working with someone like yourself because for a new person in the to get to that stage, they're going to have to pay a lot for training. They're going to have to pay a lot yeah. for knowledge that might take them six weeks longer than it would take you and property has to move like overnight and if if they're sat for three weeks dwelling over the numbers because they don't actually know compared to working
1: with someone like yourself they're going to lose it simple as that yeah yeah exactly um and there's even things like um you know when you get into the the pre-planning stages working out the legal access, like something I checked for a client, said, well, we, we're going for this style of plant. I said, you don't have legal access to the rear of the property where the entrance is on the, on the new design. Right, okay. They've got to sort all that out before they can go to planning, planning on it. Yeah. Um, but they would have never picked it up. And if they, if they didn't, they'd have got planning permission or something that wasn't physically able to be built. To be built.
0: So obviously to get the, the diggers or whatever around the back, you mean?
1: Yeah, No, it was main access to the entrance to the property. To get entrance, it was over someone else's land and it was right. illegal access.
0: And that's not something planning will pick up on, is it? That's down to you to focus on.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You, you can get planning permission on on stuff that isn't actually viable to build, right. um, which which is crazy when you think about it. But... Well, it is, but I
0: guess it's not their problem, is it?
1: No, it's not, no. And th- this is why sometimes you can see properties that people have brought quickly got planning permission on it and then try and sell it. Um, i'm not saying everyone does it but there are cases i've come across where the the planning they've got is not very realistic and uh, people get excited to buy it and then realize they can't build it or they have to go back to planning to change it and how how would you find that information i'd always say go to a professional either a, you know an architect if he's got the knowledge or a planning consultant if you've got a good relationship with him as well yeah if you if you're not really technically minded in, in, in that knowing a lot about it I'd say, I'd always just, as a minimum, go to an architect and say, look, um, if you've got a good relationship, they'll do it for free. If not, say, look, I'll pay 100 quid. Can you, same as you would with a solicitor checking the legal pack. Go, can you check over these plans and just make sure that they are viable? There's nothing missing, nothing needs to be tweaked, yeah. anything like that. And, and they'll tell you straight away what, what is and isn't correct. So I thought I'd, I'll just run over how
0: I see it as structure in the finance point of view, because obviously we, we fund a lot of these style of projects yeah quite often they're sort of fun wrong or someone's fixated on a on a specific type of funding so initially you know it is going to involve bridging finance which a lot of people seem to be put off by but if it allows you to complete the project and the numbers work to um, take into account the, the added cost of bridging then it's you know it, it allows you to do it whereas I see a lot of people try and put it onto a, a traditional mortgage and do the refurb then and you know a lot of people are getting caught out on doing that now so um, it's not worth doing but another thing is a lot of people get so fixated on bridge to let yeah and um, as much as bridge to let is a great product in, as a whole it's still might not necessarily be the right thing, so to give an example um, you 've got bridge to let lenders like your Shawbrooks lend invest um, there 's quite a few now that offer a precise offer a, a fluid product, but actually, if the exit you know, if you 're say buying in your personal name, then refinancing out with Shawbrook or Lend invest isn 't going to be the right option for the exit you 'd be better off taking it to cheaper lenders like BM Solutions, the Mortgage Works, those sort of lenders that operate in the personal name space where they're going to be offering rates of 2 2.5% two compared to 3 3.5%. Three so that's where we'd sit down and, you know, whereas we talked about initially what, what your plan is, you've got it from the property side of, okay, are, is your plan to convert it to a HMO? Is your plan to convert it to a single let? Is it planned to convert to a HMO for blue collars, et cetera, et cetera? It would also be, are you planning to keep it are you planning to buy in a limited company? Are you planning to buy in your own name? Are you planning to sell it? Um, So that's where we'd sit down. So the initial stage would be bridging finance, and that would be structured two ways. You could either borrow 75% towards the purchase and fund the refurb yourself, or, and again, these are rough numbers, and I won't quote rates because rates are changing every day, especially at the moment. but you can also fund it via development or a, a refurb product, which will be roughly sixty five to seventy percent towards the purchase and a hundred percent of your build costs and uh, something Jim's used obviously in the past or and also now they' stage the the um they stage the the payments towards the refurb so as I'll bring you in there, Jim because you know, obviously, you've done this, you've done that sort of style of lending before. Just give a breakdown of how that stage works. So, obviously, you've got your project manager. Uh, so, your surveyors come out and, and assess the yeah. what you've done. So, just give a breakdown for people that haven't done it before how that side of things works.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, I think when when you hear the term one hundred percent development finance. Mm. Um, it is true where, where you do get paid at all. Um, but what you've got to be mindful of is your cash flow at that point where it depends on what payment terms you've got with the contractor doing the works. But um, you will only get paid from the development finance or, or company at, at agreed stages after they've been to inspect the work. So for example, if you had um, a 10% deposit uh, to start the works and the contractor you've got to pay, you will have to find the cash to pay them that 10% start work. Um if you have a milestone, say when first fix is being completed um, you will ask for the bank surveyor to come out and, and view the property, um, they will do a report where the works are at. So if you say first fix is complete, they'll basically come and verify and check that all that works have been completed yeah. um, okay. they'll then create a report together and send that off to the bank for approval to release that stage of payments. Um, at which point you'll get that money back um, in your bank, basically.
0: The bank repays your debt throughout the build. So if you give 20 grand's worth of build, they'll then pay you 20 grand to do the next 20 grand worth of build.
1: You've got to be mindful of your your cash flow, that your contract, you are paying them. Um, Again, It it depends what what you've got with them. And Some contractors will do it on a a monthly basis, so you don't pay them anything up front, you just pay them on a fixed monthly basis of what works have been done. Yeah. so you could have it where the bank will come out after month one inspect the work say there's 20 grand's worth of work being done and you pay that 20 grand straight to the contractor yeah Um, which is one way of doing it um it can be a little bit harder to define how much works have been done on a time basis uh so because you have to go like well first floor has been first fixed ground floor's not this one's missing the electrics haven't been done and uh, I mean, for me, I prefer milestones. So typically, we have um, a layout and rip out demolition works being complete, then first fix is being complete, then plastering is complete, second fix, and then final handover. Yes. Um, they're typically the milestones I like to work to. But uh, the other thing as well, we we well, I, I, I picked up on because I was naive about it, it was the VAT, and I spoke with you about it, didn't yeah, I? Yeah. Yeah. So. With development finance, they will pay you net of VAT. So when you pay a contractor, you will have to pay the VAT to them separately to development finance. So on conversion projects where they are five percent VAT, it's not so bad. But on a smaller project where it's, uh, or sorry, on another project where it's twenty percent VAT, you will have to find that twenty percent uh, as well. Yeah, which, like you say, when the when the percentage is
0: that high, can can have a large impact. Uh, yeah happening touching on the the debt in bases again that you know that's something you can negotiate with your contractors isn't it as
1: to when you... yeah yeah exactly you you could agree that that you only pay them when you get paid from the bank and when they when they come out of view yeah. um, or some some will go well we we won't accept that we want paid at our milestones
0: yes okay so going back to the funding side, so, you know, again, rough numbers, are they'd, they'd give you 70% day one and, you know, 100% build costs minus what we've just been talking about. But, um, you know, it depends on the size of the refurb as well. If, you, if you're if you just doing a single leg conversion where you're spending 10, 15 grand on the refurb, then it's that sort of product isn't going to be the one for you. You could, you're better off looking at a, a 75% traditional bridge and funding that refurb yourself. Um, the, the refurb project comes into play when the, when the refurb's are sort of probably 25 grand minimum, really, um, maybe push into 20, but the, you know, 25 grand re- reasonable is uh, to expect that sort of product. And another thing that a lot of people don't realise with bridging is the the interest. Uh, you don't have to pay monthly on that. You can even net it off the initial balance or on a refer product. They'll roll it up until the end of the term um, because, you know, they don't know how long that, that project is going to last for, um, you know. We, and that's another thing to touch on, actually. When we're funding, you know, initially someone might come and say, you know, the refurb is going to take six months, but we'd probably look to put funding in place for nine or even 12 months because, the exit again you need time to either flip it onto a term product or you need time to put it on the market and sell it and the last thing you want to be doing is two months into trying to sell the properties thinking right my bridging is going to come to an end any day now um, and that's when the, the large charges and costs can come into play so it's about structuring the whole deal as to having a plan in place from the start and uh, putting the funding in place best suit that Um, and again like I say touching on the bridge to let we'd we'd have to discuss that um, on a case-by-case basis a bridge to let product might be the right one but um, nine times out of ten we tend to uh, we tend to put our own bridge to let in place in in regards to we'll sort of underwrite the exit for you to ensure that there's there's going to be options there Uh, and we'll also be there to sort of hold your hand throughout the process and we work with construction companies And again, similar to what we do with Jim, you know, he will take on a client and help them and and we'll fund it and we'll be able to talk to Jim throughout the process as well. So you're sort of piggybacking on the construction team's experience compared to talking directly to the client. So um, it works well. But again, talking about an, an exit, you know, you need to make sure that the funding for your exit is available before even agreeing or signing anything on the bridging finance because the last thing you want to be do, doing is stuck on that on that expensive funding. So, again, single lets you're pretty much guaranteed to get an exit on there as long as you've got not got bad credit. You you know there's tons of single let um, funders out there. But to be aware of from um, the HMO side from two aspects. One is the HMO exit. Not many lenders. In fact, there's probably only one or two that will lend to first-time landlords on HMOs. And that's something that we see a lot of, um, a lot of issues where people have come to us and say, look, I've, I've done this HMO, but actually I can't get the exit funding now because I've done it cash or whatever. Realistically, um, to get the best funding on an exit for HMO, you need at least a year or two years landlord experience. And that's something we try and, and talk to about. There are some, like Kemp Alliance, Interbay, Um, that will do first-time landlords, but either A, you're going to pay a premium for that product, or B, if they decide that actually they can't do it based on other circumstances, you're then stuck with those. Whereas if you've got two years' experience, you've probably got access to 50 lenders that will do it. And if one doesn't do it, then another one will. So that's something to take into account. The other one, and something we, again, both Jim and I see a lot of, is the hype around commercial valuations. Valuations, it's less of a science, and more of a um, just magic. magic, <laughs> <yeah>. magic. <laughs> to give a rough idea, if you, to get a commercial valuation, you need to realistically be looking at property seven bed or more. I don't know if yeah. you can do oh. that. Same. Yeah. Um, and that also comes down to comparables in the area. You can't just automatically assume that because you've got a seven bed, property that you're automatically going to get commercial valuation because if there's no other HMOs in the area and you've built the first one what else have they got to compare it to and I'm guessing that's again for you Jim it's something you look at from the start you'll always look at comparables in the area to help you get the GDV figure
1: yeah definitely um, you know it, it, it's, it's bread and butter when you're looking at a deal is looking at what's going to be worth at the end of it absolutely um, you know I mean one what, what inch I mean I've, I've had I'd say you're right. Seven beds or over generally are the ones that are going to get commercial valuations. Yeah. I have seen them on six beds with yeah. all on suites uh, yeah. as well, but you take a little bit more risk in it. Um, if you're in an article four area yeah. and you have a HMO, you've got a stronger chance because the values hold better. Yeah. Um, we had, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, we had a, a seven bed all on suite HMO, not in article four, in uh, a, Rather low-value area. We sold it to someone at two fifty, I think, and the valuer came out for the HMO mortgage and valued it at one sixty, right? Um, which right. is ludicrous because we'd sold it at that price, but they would not value it at the price we sold it for. Yeah. Um. Even though it's a seven-bed and a suite, but yeah. you know, so it really is. It really depends on you know so many things like who the valuer is because I think it was the valuer who. Um, it's our favourite, Connells, um, who who wouldn't value it um, very well. But you know, it's one of those. It's hard to hard to judge. Again, it's working with
0: a, a lender that might not necessarily use a valuer like Connells. Yeah, um, a lot of people like Shawbrook because they don't use Connells. They use um, Allied Surveyors, which seem to understand the HMO sector more than it than others. But again, it's it, <laughs> it's a difficult one to judge because Shawbrook are higher rates you're looking at four and a half five percent probably on a HMO compared to someone like youende vest Paragon who are going to use Connells but charge three three and a half percent so it's a case of you know it's you need to approach your broker, whoever that is, with the project and actually sit down and talk to them about, okay, this is the figures I'm working on because X down the road sold for this much and it's going to be, that's a six bed. This sold down the road, that's a seven bed. And I could see that, you know, the commercial valuation was there on that property. So at the end of the day, the person that goes around to value a property is a human and they've got risks around their neck that if they value it incorrectly it's their job that's at risk. So the last thing they're going to do is go, oh, you, you know, you've got a six bed and you've budgeted for a commercial valuation, but actually I don't think it's worth that. The last thing they're going to do is go, oh, okay, because you've said that, I'll, I'll give it a commercial valuation. They're going to base it on the lower of the two always because, that, you know, it's not worth their insurance and their job. So... Yeah, yeah.
1: Which, um, is, which is a very good point because you know, that's what some people don't necessarily realise they think from a deal point of view they go oh we need to max out the commercial valuation it gets as high as possible yep. um, but like you said the value is there to protect the mortgage lender exactly. um, that if all goes horribly wrong and they need to liquidate or get rid of the asset they're going to get the money back mm-hmm. and if it's way overflated and it's not a realistic price that they can sell it for in a reasonable time frame yep. then they're not going to value it anymore. no exactly uh, and then obviously, I think that's that's one
0: point that I think a lot of property people struggle to understand is the human element to it, and the fact that you know if you actually look into the detail of how much risk these lenders are taking, you know, yeah, at the end of the day they're giving you seventy five percent of a of a property that you own with with a charge, but you know we all know that a property can fluctuate and drop quite quite drastically if if the market fails and we can also see that it can go up but that's the risk that the bank's taking because in theory they own more of it than you do yeah and i mean you they haven't got the staff all the time or the knowledge to set to sit and wait for that property to sell if if, if it goes tits up they yeah
1: just think, quickly yeah exactly right i mean what what scares me sometimes i see you know, a few posts out there with people going, well, I've just got a great new deal. They'll post the headline figures of what they think they'll get. So it might be like they brought it at uh, 150 grand. They said they'll spend 80 on it to refurb it to 6 bed HMO, 7 bed HMO. Yeah. And they'll refinance at 350, 400K, which sounds amazing on paper. But they, they might not have done a refinance yet. And, and the problem is you're buying a house on a street uh, one fifty it might be worth two hundred a, a house a standard house you're almost doubling the value Definitely. so the, the value is is going to look at it i think well what every other house in the street i can only get it i can only sell it for 200, 250. hundred two fifty i'm not it's not worth yeah any more than that yeah um you know and it's it's yeah it, it, it's it's scary seeing these things sometimes, and i think marketing i think value is if anything are going to get more cautious going forward absolutely. Uh, yeah, I mean, we you've know, you've obviously seen it with a obviously the coronavirus and all that stuff going off that um, they've just gone cautious to the roof anyway, and yeah. I think yeah. as time goes on, it's going to get harder and harder.
0: Yeah, I think
1: uh, going back to the, the the commercial part is,
0: you know, just because you've got five people living in a house doesn't mean that it suddenly becomes a commercial unit. No, <laughs> I, I don't see. Where the link is there, you know, it doesn't become a business as such. It just becomes a house that's got five people in it. Uh, and I think that's where some people struggle to actually, you know, again, see the human element part of it. Um, the whole point in a commercial valuation is that as an as an asset, it's, it becomes a business rather than a property. You're buying a business. Correct. Um, and, you know, realistically, if you've got a five-bed um hmo you know that probably equals about a decent sized three bed house
1: yeah rooms
0: you know, up a bit and and it a bit it probably is a three bed house and that's what they've got to value it at because the number of people that are on the market that are going to look to buy a hmo compared to the number of people who are going to look to buy a three-bedroom house the number is going to be stacked heavily towards the people wanting to buy a three-bedroom house and at yeah. the end of the day, when the lender needs to get rid of it, that's what they're going to get rid of it as. So,
1: yeah, that's def- definitely right. And it's, you know, and it, I think I think as well, you're pretty safe. Um, you know, if you're buying a pub and you're converting it to a twelve bedroom, hey, yeah, you, yeah. You, it, it it's commercial property before and it's a commercial asset. You can't value that the same as a house anyway. Right. It's a completely right. different entity. Yeah. Um, so generally, surveyors will, will try and value it on a yield basis um, for the income it's producing. Which is what commercial surveyors do, yes. um, not what a residential <laughs> surveyors do. So you've got to think about the target
0: audience. You know, if you're converting a pub to a big HMO, no one, no family with their two new kids and new family is going to be like, "Oh, I really want to live in this pub." It doesn't happen. Yeah. Whereas if you've got a pub that you converted to a HMO, a businessman's going to be looking at it and go, "Oh, okay, yeah, this is a business that I want to buy." Because it's worth this much and it produces this much cash flow. So you got a, and that's where the valuations are different, um, which I think a lot of people, you know, when we see it and, and they give us the numbers, you, you're almost like, okay, you're relying so much on the end value, but is that realistic? So we've touched on, obviously, a bit about the property, a bit about refurb, a bit about the funding. What for you makes a deal work? Have you got numbers, percentages that you, work towards and then give a bit of an insight about how you find these deals
1: yeah so i I mean i'm quite analytical and i've got my own kind of deal analyzer i've I've created and you know i I work very heavily to return on investment um, percentage um, number so for anyone doesn't know i i calculated basically on the the cash you've got left in the property the yep. net income you get compared to your cash uh, yes. after it's refinanced is what your return on investment is going to be. Yes. Everyone's after the money in, money out deal where it's, it's the infinite ROI, yep. um, which is amazing. It's great. Um, in my area, buy-to-let doesn't work. You can't get that at all. Um, I think for some investors I work from, and this is for a turnkey investment firm, so that's a source of managing. Um, some are happy with between 12 and 15% return. Um, yeah. yeah. That's what you're going to get in the banks. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And they're building up a small portfolio at the same time. Um, you know, on a small HMO, on the same basis, it might be 20%, but then if they did a lot of, you know, source themselves and all that stuff, mm. 30% maybe be achievable, kept costs down. Um, you know, the bigger commercial conversion projects, generally, we'd always aim to uh, get. 40 50 percent roi or above really? okay. um yeah which some people look at it and go well, i'm not getting the money out and i go well no you're not but you make making 50 roi go find another asset that's giving you that much return yeah
0: um
1: yes there are risks on it but on those level of projects that y- you kind of mitigate as much as possible and put your contingencies in do your due diligence and um you know, even if it dropped down 30% ROI, it's not like you're making no money from it.
0: Right. There's enough margin in there forever, isn't
1: there? Yeah, absolutely.
0: So would you would you assess a deal on that basis purely then rather than necessarily appreciation of value?
1: Yeah. Uh, for me, I always go on cash flow first. I, I would want to make sure it does cash flow um, in, in the right direction and then cap appreciation comes second. Um, and I do you know... I think I think that's what I see the majority of investors focusing on as well. Um, you know, if you if you if you if you've got a lot of cash in the bank and you invest in places like London, some people do just buy it in the high growth areas and they're not worried about that at all, as long as it covers their mortgage. Yeah. Um, but then you know, Nick, as well, you've got the the stress um,
0: stress testing. Well, yeah.
1: Stress testing. So you need to actually show you've got enough income to put in the mortgage as well. Yeah. yeah
0: which is, you know, on those higher value properties, that's where it starts to become a bit difficult. Um, yeah. And again, with the higher value properties, you tend to find the yield and the return on investment lower, don't you?
1: Oh, yeah. Massively single out. Massively lower, yeah.
0: Um, okay. So, yeah, I agree with you, actually. The cash-flowing element is, you know, is, is more important because um, What I think for a lot of people, once you've got that safety net of, a cash flow coming in every month then you can start to open your way up to bigger projects and i think that's something you've touched on as well not only from an experience point of view but also you know like you say if you jump straight into a big development you're not going to get a single penny in for 12 months
1: yeah yeah Whereas exactly
0: a few single lets generating you know net 300 a month at, you know, every single month and you've got four or five of those then you're yeah. pretty and you can do these bigger projects
1: yeah, definitely. Yeah, because the the bigger projects you do, the the bigger the problem the problems become. I mean, obviously every problem can be solved, but you know, for example, you might find that oh, I need a I need a consultant to work out my ventilation in this property. They're going to cost me an extra thousand yeah, pounds. Yeah. Whereas on a buy to let, thousand pounds would just kill yeah. kill yeah. the refurb for you. Yeah. yeah. Uh, if you don't have a grand in the bank, you know you can't progress it.
0: No, that's it. That's it. No, I agree. <laughs> and then where where <laughs> Where do you start, you know, obviously you're giving all your, your top tips away, but where would you start by finding these deals? I, you know, a lot of people talk about property and the numbers, but for me, it's just people, isn't it? It's a real people business. It,
1: it definitely is. It definitely is. I think everyone talks about direct-to-vendor, and I think I agree some of the best deals I've got have been direct-to-vendor, but that's more on commercial property because I find that's a lot more personable and people- uh, especially even if it goes to surveyors for them to sell, they won't necessarily be full on trying to sell it. It'll be more in their close circle or or yeah. something that vendors vendor's been looking at selling but hasn't officially told to sell. Yeah. Um, you know, if you're looking for a buy-to-let property, we we I think we've bought every buy-to-let property through an estate agent. Really. Uh, okay. Yeah. I mean, you, you look at the when you look at the type of properties they are. They generally uh, they were either previously tenanted or their previous homes that someone's lived in. Yeah, so they, yeah. they always go to an estate agent. They Always go to an estate agent. Yeah. Um. So, and you know, estate agents sell probably ninety percent of the properties in the UK. Of course. I don't yeah. know if that's true. I'm just making a figure. Yeah, it probably out. is about that. Yeah, yeah. Um. So you think, well, why why go and try and work on the ten percent when you can work on the ninety percent? Yeah. Um. I think with a agents, you have to be very specific what you look at and very um tight on what your numbers need to be but if it, if if you keep looking and keep offering and keep keep them in the loop of what you're after, eventually something will happen. I think it's hard to to find them unless you're focusing on it um, but if you're focusing on it and and you've got that in mind for a state agency it's, it's going to work
0: yeah a couple of points with that is again you know we've talked about the estate agents, they probably are about 90%. You're probably not far off with that, but also that's free. Whereas actually when you think about how you target the other 10%, you have to put a fair bit of money into leaflets or social media campaigns and that all adds up and you have to be on it as well. Um, It's not something you can just be like, oh, I'll run this and then forget about it. You have to be on it to really get the results from it. Whereas if you've got an estate agent, you know they're almost doing that hard work for you and you're not paying anything for it. One thing, again, that I've, that I've spoke to about, you know, with the good investors that, um, that I've worked with, they don't mess around with agents, do they? It's, you know one, If you say yes and you're gonna have it, that is it. You, you need to follow through and, and, and deliver on that. Because one, one, at the end of the day, an agent's got a commission to make, and that relies on you. And if you mess them about too many times, they're just gonna lose that relationship, aren't you? And that's fair enough.
1: Yeah, definitely. It's um, yeah, it's all about a relationship with estate agents, and don't try and get friends. Don't well, don't try and be the best friends and have the best relationship with every single estate agent because you won't be able to maintain it. I mean, for me, I've got a very small number of, of ones I like and people I like and work with in in those agencies who we, we keep in chat. But other people, I I, I sometimes I see certain stages they'll they'll have a props online. And I just oh no, they've got it. I'm just not going to waste my time on it because I know there'll be a nightmare. And they're, you know, I don't trust them all, all the time as well. Sometimes to be fair, but yeah, yeah, it's a
0: fine line, isn't it? Yeah, fine line. Again, it's you know, it's it's um. I always rely. I always talk about it's working a small pond. If you if you chuck your bread on. Out on a small pond, you're probably going to get a few fish tape and you can see it and you can have control over it. If you took a bit of bread out over on the sea, you lose sight of it and eventually it might get a bite, but you're never going to see it. And yeah, that's where yeah. I look at it. It's better to have a small pond that you can keep focusing on than targeting 20 estate agents that you can, you're never going to keep contact with.
1: It's a good analogy, that, not it? Shoots yeah,
0: you to <laughs> Obviously, compared to fishing, of course. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah.
0: But, yeah, you get what I'm saying. It's better to talk. And we've talked about that in the past with networking, haven't we? It's better to go to three regularly than it is to go to 20 every now and again.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's
0: the same throughout. throughout. Well, hopefully there's been a lot of value there. I don't know if anything else you want to add, any other nuggets
1: that you've picked up on? I say to people, if you're going to go, if that's what your strategy wants to be, I I kind of map out your your goals and what that all looks like in – Put some figures to it as well. Um, put some figures out what you're looking for, what works, and then, then you can go out and find it. Mm. Um, I, think I think another know. thing is, is
0: a lot of people say focus on one strategy and they might say I'm going to focus on HMOs. You know? But you can sort of do BRR within that strategy. Oh,
1: definitely, yeah.
0: And it, it allows you to probably free up more cash flow as well and learn a lot more quicker.
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, because BRR kind of applies from everything from a small buy to that to a massive big commercial conversion project because you're still doing the same process, just different style of project. Um, But work your way up to the big ones.
0: So hopefully we've added a lot of value. If you've got any questions, you know where to find us both on social media. Um, And hopefully you enjoy these kind of episodes where we... Go into a bit of a detail on a subject and feel free to leave any comments on social media about what you'd like us to cover off. We'll try and work through various property strategies, a bit about business um, and other things that we dabble into. And uh, yeah, until next time, thank you. Yeah, thanks everyone. This is the Entrepreneur Academy. If you have a question, use the hashtag The
1: Entrepreneur Academy.